Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch, a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. The episode to which you're about to listen was recorded live at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin, where I teach a course in Old Testament in the summers, and my main gig's at Westminster Theological Center in the UK. Um, it's always a pleasure to return to Neshota each each summer, and it's a, a wonderful place for a live episode. So we are honored this year to host Stephen Chester, who wrote a superb book called Reading Paul with the Reformers. If you get a chance to check it out, click through the link on our website, onscript.study. And as a reminder, if you'd like to support the ongoing work of Onscript to the tune of $2 or $5 a month, you can do so by going to onscript.study forward slash donate, and we would really appreciate that. So without further ado, here's the episode. Well, welcome everyone. Thanks for sticking around for this podcast with Dr. Stephen Chester, and thank you for making the journey up. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Well, um, we're here live at Neshota House in Wisconsin, and if you've never been here, it's a, it's a beautiful location, and uh, uh, up in the up in the woods, and deer are wandering around all the time. So it's a it's a beautiful place, and we're we're very pleased to have uh, Stephen Chester as our guest, and he is professor of New Testament and academic dean at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, and he is ordained in the Presbyterian denomination of the Church of Scotland. Is that correct? That's correct. Is that the same thing as just the Church of Scotland? Yes, it is. Okay. All right. <laughs> but, perfect. Uh, you've got the bio from uh, the North Park website. I, that, I have. That helps to explain to people in the States, because uh, okay. you, you often get the phenomenon of people thinking that the Church of Scotland is the same as the Church of England, uh-huh. and that really upsets the Scots. Yeah. Does that... Do, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's helpful. So you've, you've done some interpretation. And he's, and he's written a, a truly uh, remarkable book, Reading Paul with the Reformers, Reconciling Old and New Perspectives, uh, published by Erdman's in 2017. And it's got a very nice foreword by John Barclay, uh, which is a, a really positive vote of confidence uh, in, in the field of New Testament, if you don't know John Barclay as well. So, Stephen, uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time to be here. So, first off, first off, I want to... Um, just get a, I wonder if you could help our, our listeners get a sense of the type of project that you've undertaken here. Uh, so you've, you've set this study within the, um, in, of, of reading Paul at the Reformers within the broader discipline of reception history. And for those who follow uh, biblical studies, um, why do they need to pay attention to this field of study? Oh, that's a great question. This might be a fairly lengthy answer, I think. Uh, I suppose, for me, the answer to that question is tied up with the history of the project, which is from very early on in my own study of Paul, I came to feel there was something unsatisfactory about uh, contemporary debates concerning the new perspective. On the one hand, uh, the new perspective was giving us a way of reading Paul's texts uh, that was not uh, caricaturing Judaism as mm-hmm. a religion of works righteousness. And, 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 th- and just as a, as a, a quick, if I could jump in, yeah. the new perspective, what is, what is that for those who aren't familiar? Oh, yeah. So um, broadly speaking, if you look at the 
you know, five centuries of Pauline interpretation that follow the Reformation, interpretation of Paul across that period is, is dominated by trajectories of interpretation that stem from the work of the Protestant reformers. So that doesn't mean everybody agrees about everything, and it, it doesn't mean there's no change or development. But if you look at the, the lineage, the, the, the heritage of the dominant ideas that are involved in interpreting uh, what the gospel means for Paul across that very long historical period, then the, the ideas that dominate tend to be those that have stemmed from the Reformation. But of course, in the 16th century, one of the central arguments that Luther and others make is that, that justification is not by works. In other words, it's it's not what we do to earn our righteousness that is the important thing. It, it's rather receiving that by faith as a, as a gift on account of the work of Christ uh, done on our behalf. And, and so that's a, a central idea. But with the rise of uh, historical critical approaches to Paul uh, in the modern era, then that idea gets kind of transferred, if you like, uh, from the ecclesial and theological context of the Reformation into the context of historical critical study. And it's applied to the study of Judaism. Uh, and what it does is it leads to uh, portrayals of Judaism in Western scholarship that, that portray it rather negatively uh, as a kind of legalistic religion where everybody's concerned about whether they've, they've done enough in terms of good deeds uh, in order to, to merit salvation. And that negative picture is overturned by the new perspective on Paul, which emerges in the late 1970s and early 1980s with the work of scholars like E.P. Sanders, uh, James Dunn, uh, and, and Tom Wright in some of his early work. And they begin to argue that, that that's a false portrayal of Judaism. And so that when Paul says that justification is not by works of the law, uh, what he's rejecting must be something different from that traditional picture of Judaism as a religion of works righteousness. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, so so then um, getting back to the idea of, thanks for that clarification, getting back to the idea of reception history, What what's the, you know, you've set this study of reading Paul within that context mm -hmm. of, um, I think, an increasingly prominent approach to the Bible, which is uh, looking at the history of interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, so what is that, uh, how would you characterize that approach to reading the Bible? Yeah, yeah so I think what this approach does is is take seriously the insights of previous generations into interpreting the texts. So in that new perspective debate that I, I just kind of uh, clarified or summarized, um, it, it, it's pretty clear, I think, that the new perspective did something very positive in helping us revise our picture of Judaism and, and therefore you know, give us an alternative set of lenses through which we could look at what Paul is trying to say in his letters. So that that's very helpful. My feeling about what was unsatisfactory about that was really that it then led to a caricature of the Reformers and the Reformation tradition as having nothing positive to contribute uh, to our interpretation of Paul in the contemporary world. And And this seems to me unhelpful because actually it merely reverses the prejudices that some previous generations of interpreters have, have held, particularly within Protestantism, where traditions of interpretation stemming from the Reformation were taken very seriously, for example, but 
uh, the work of the church fathers in in interpreting Paul was always held to be suspect uh, or to be leading Paul leading the interpretation of Paul in in directions that were diluting his his original gospel message and and actually uh, I want to say no when we look at previous generations of interpreters across 2,000 years, of course they're interpreting for different contexts. Of course we can't simply repeat in our contemporary context what people said in previous generations. Our context is different, our questions is different. If, if we simply repeat them, then th that's not going to be very relevant in terms of how we interpret the text theologically and apply them today. Um, but having said that, if we ignore them, then I, I think there's two big problems. Number one, actually, although our questions are not the same as theirs, our, our questions are shaped by previous generations of interpreters. We, we don't come to the texts cold. We always come to the texts with preconceptions that have been been shaped by what's gone before in the history of interpretation, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, and, and that process goes on because uh, people who teach about the texts have been taught by somebody. And, and so particular perspectives on interpreting particular biblical texts get handed down in the classroom, even if people are not explicitly conscious of the, the, the source or the root of those ideas. So that, that's the first problem with ignoring the history of interpretation, that we, we don't actually understand ourselves very well as interpreters if we do that. Um, the, the second issue, I think, is that figures in the past have an enormous amount of wisdom to offer us. And so for me, um, in relation to Paul, because of the new perspective, I felt the reformers were already in the debate and were being, in, in certain respects, rightly criticized, but in other important respects, caricatured and dismissed when they actually still have important things to teach us. Um, but I'd also want to say very clearly that I, I don't think it's just the reformers. I think there are insights to be gleaned from across the history of reception uh, that could be helpful to us as Pauline interpreters today. So that's the kind of framing or spirit of the project. That, that, that's what it's trying to do. Yeah, that's, that's a helpful um, mm -hmm. framing of, of what you're doing. So, so what are maybe just examples of ways that we as modern readers are dependent on Reformation insights that we might not be aware of. Yeah, there's a, a, a kind of part, the final part of the book, the, the, there's two chapters, and the, the, the first of those two chapters in the final part focuses in on this in, in terms of looking at some of the antecedents of contemporary debates about Paul. And so it's not that any of our contemporary interpretations simply reproduce what was said in the 16th century. Uh, but typically what happens is certain exegetical moves that are still argued for in a contemporary context actually have their roots in those 16th century debates. Um, so if we look at um, apocalyptic interpretations of Paul, for example, um, so those interpretations today that think about Paul primarily as an apocalyptic thinker whose, whose theology is, is governed by the idea of a transition between two ages that is, is brought by uh, the coming of the Messiah and the work of Christ. Um, that kind of interpretation of Paul tends to work uh, very strongly 
with the idea of, of sin as a cosmic power. And I think that's a very important idea in Paul. But actually, if you look at the history of early Pauline interpretation and indeed medieval Pauline interpretation, for centuries, Orthodox, uh, with the smaller Orthodox interpreters of Paul, were confronted with dualist heresies of various kinds, where they had opponents who were wanting to deny the goodness of God's creation, uh, were wanting to see uh, the creator God of the Old Testament as some kind of inferior deity. Um, And so typically in those contexts, Orthodox interpreters want to hear the pieces in Paul that um, explore sin not so much as a cosmic power, but rather as a, a, a human decision. Because if you explore sin as a cosmic power, then uh, you're raising questions about, well, how how does that evil exist when God's creation is good? Um, that's the piece of Paul that the, the dualist heretics tend to want to emphasize. But suddenly, uh, in the late medieval period, for the first time in a very long time, there are no dualist heretics in the, the European context. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and Luther hears those tones in Paul that, that speak about the enslaving nature of sin, he hears those much more clearly than previous interpreters were, were able to. Um, and um, so if you look at what Paul says about the nature of sin, what Paul says about the nature of the flesh, for example, and the struggle of the flesh against the spirit, uh, although they're not saying exactly the same thing by any means, it's not difficult when you start to trace the genealogy to see how contemporary perspectives on that are dependent upon some exegetical arguments that were originally made by Luther and other early Protestant interpreters in the 16th century about the nature of sin and the flesh that were fairly radical and new in their context. But what's happened in contemporary interpretation is those elements of the reformers' ideas get intensified and, and other elements of the reformers' ideas get pushed to the margins. Or if you go to the other side of that argument and the kind of covenantal approach to interpreting Paul that might be typified by somebody like Paul, Wright, like Tom Wright. Of course, Tom um, is developing it in a very different way, but the idea of covenant has been central to Pauline interpretation in the Reformed Calvinist tradition. And, and in certain ways, Tom is uh, hearing that afresh and, and intensifying it and developing it in new forms but but nevertheless, there is a, a, a recognizable kind of history of where that idea is coming from. So it's not the present interpreters just just repeat um, ideas from the past, but but it is that if you trace through the history of the ideas, uh, then the kind of exegetical insights of the reformers are still present in contemporary scholarship in various ways. even when those contemporary scholars don't necessarily want to recognize that themselves. Yeah, Yeah. that's really helpful. And and, um, I was interested in how you you started your book. So you talk about the debates between Mm -hmm. Erasmus and and Luther. Um, And and there are a lot of dimensions of that debate that I I find quite interesting. And one one of them is is Luther's rejection of allegory as a, a legitimate an essential tool for interpretation. So um, you say on page 23, the allegory uh, for Luther is not an essential tool for interpretation since there's no need for mediation between the letter and the spirit. 
um, in Scripture, God communicates openly and plainly, and it is in order to do this that God has accommodated himself to human language in Scripture. So, so within the context of that debate, Luther's rejecting allegory and, and arguing that Scripture is is plain and open and, and, and you know it can be interpreted so how how does he do you find that approach to reading scripture convincing the idea that um, the meaning of scripture is is plain and and available do you think do you think Luther has the better end of that d- debate oh well, that's a great question because I I was never quite sure about this mm-hmm. I, and I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about this debate um, Luther and Erasmus have this debate in the 1520s that is primarily about the freedom or the bondage of the human will. Um, But in the margins of that wider discussion about the human will, they say a lot about the nature of Scripture and its interpretation and disagree with each other quite strongly about that also. And it seems to me a kind of somewhat tragic discussion, actually, because on the one hand, uh, Luther is very upset by Erasmus because Erasmus... Uh, has decided to stick with Rome and and not to join Luther's side in the Reformation arguments. Uh, And yet, certain of Luther's exegetical ideas are clearly indebted to Erasmus. And so I think it just seems to Luther that Erasmus is not prepared to go where his own scholarship takes him. And I think that's somewhat of a just accusation, actually. There are points at which Erasmus's exegesis seems to me to be significantly in tension with um, what, you know, was understood to be uh, the standard teaching of the Catholic Church at that point, particularly, for example, about the nature of faith, where some of the things that he says seem significantly uh, to echo, or or not echo, but to be precursors of things that Luther himself will say. And yet, on the other side, Luther feels that he's applying the tools of his scholarship um, particularly his enormous learning in the original languages uh, of the biblical texts, and he's in simply interpreting what's there. And, and I think it's a genuine shock to him when uh, other people can't always see that he's just reading what's there. Um, you know, so the, the subsequent history of Protestantism with uh, its fracturing into hundreds of different uh, church traditions um, Erasmus can see very clearly that that's a danger. Uh, Luther Luther can't see that in the 1520s. And, and so there's this kind of, I think, this tragic argument where on the one hand, uh, Luther is correct that Erasmus's exegesis is, is leading to some new places theologically. But Erasmus also sees much more clearly than Luther is able where this is going to lead in terms of the, the Christian tradition becoming more and more fractured into different groups. Yeah, so... Um I think I think for a lot of us looking back at Luther, at least the caricature that comes through is of um, a, re- a reformer who who arms the individual interpreter and does lead to that fracturing. So it it could be a surprise um, that that Luther says at the same time, quote, "It's impossible for the church to err." even in the smallest article. And that's with regard to the interpretation of Scripture. So how is he, on the one hand, arming the, the interpreter to read the plain sense of the text, and that's you know, open to anyone, but at the same time saying that the Church will not err in its interpretation? Okay. Yeah, well, there are, there are some later ideas that get overlaid on, on Luther at this point often, I think. 
Um, he he's not arguing for a plain sense reading of the text in in terms of anybody being able to pick up uh, the scripture and be able to immediately understand everything that's said there. Um, you know, he's somebody that that thinks that you have to work extremely hard to in, interpret the biblical text correctly, and that you have to use uh, all the schools of uh, tools of scholarship. Uh, and that learned interpreters have a vital role to play in the life of the church. Um, so he he's not kind of saying uh, it, it's immediately all there without any you know with it, without people having to do any work. Um, but what he is saying is that if all the tools available are applied, then uh, the meaning of the text is available. Uh, the the God intended to communicate through Scripture. And that when we don't understand or don't hear uh, accurately, then from his perspective, that that problem lies with us rather than with an inherent difficulty in the texts themselves. So what happens when you combine that view with actually some fairly traditional views about the nature of the church? Okay. What happens is it becomes all the more radical because Luther says exactly what traditional medieval interpreters would have said which is that, that ultimately, in essential matters, the church cannot err in the interpretation of Scripture. The, the, the Spirit will not permit that. And so what happens when he comes to the conclusion that, in fact, the Church of Rome is teaching falsehood? Uh, the only conclusion available to him, given that he believes that and that he thinks the church cannot err in its interpretation of Scripture, is that the Church of Rome, in his view, cannot be the true church. Uh, and therefore, the the true church uh, must, in the 16th century context, be a remnant chosen by grace. And of course, in his eyes, that remnant chosen by grace are, are, are those who are receptive to his message. Um, and when he looks back, uh, both across church history and into the pages of scripture itself, then he sees various examples of different times when the people of God have been a remnant. Uh, and so this makes sense to him in terms of the way he thinks God's worked in the past. Yeah, you make reference to the time where it, during uh, the the reign of Ahab, and you've got Elijah and the the prophets of Baal who, or, sorry, the prophets of of God who have not uh, bent their knee to to Baal, and there's this preserved remnant. So Luther sees the the true church preserved in that the remnant as opposed to the. Um, the Catholic yeah. Church. Yeah, and I think that's important to understand for all the early Protestant reformers, actually. Um, you know, the, the the name Protestant does come in fairly quickly, but in their own eyes, they're the true Catholics. Um, so they, they wouldn't have any aversion to the, 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 the being described in, in the language of being Catholic. In in their eyes, it's it's they who are preserving the true Catholic tradition and not the Church of Rome. And so that's the, that's the way the debate proceeds for them. Mm. Uh, I want to switch gears for a moment and and talk about the the theme of union with Christ, which is uh, a dominant motif that's woven throughout your book. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, the importance of of union with Christ in Luther and, and Calvin, and how that's been missed in in how those who, from a modern perspective, look back at Luther and Calvin and see maybe just a, a kind of radical break between um, uh, the the righteousness that they receive from God and any any kind of uh, total transformation of the person. Yeah. Well, I, maybe the most helpful thing is for me to say a little bit about 
how this unfolded for me, which is in, in terms of understanding what Paul was saying about justification. Um, what I was told was a traditional Protestant position was that uh, justification is a legal metaphor. It's an image drawn from the, the language of the law court. And that when you talk about somebody being justified by faith, what you're talking about is um, God as judge uh, no longer uh, seeing our sin, but seeing the work of Christ on our behalf and seeing Christ's righteousness that's been given to us uh, and therefore Christ's righteousness being gifted to us. Um, but it's a, a, it's a kind of um, courtroom transaction where Christ has the righteousness that, that we need. Um, all we have is our sinfulness. That, that righteousness of Christ through the grace of God is, is given to us when we need it. And, and therefore God is able to uh, declare us justified. Yeah, and it's sometimes put in terms of when, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Christ. Correct. And so there's a, there's a, a break between you yes. as you and Christ. Yeah. And, and so there are certain problems with that that I think have been rightly criticized in the scholarship of recent generations, um, which is if that's not handled carefully, that can turn into um, the kind of account where justification is something transactional. You know, what God requires of us is faith, and, and we provide what is required, and if we provide what is required, then then God will justify. Um, and, and faith becomes a kind of human disposition that satisfies divine requirements. Um, and also, if you simply, you know, describe it in the terms that I, I've just given, um, you're also left with the question about what about all the transformative language in, in Paul and in other biblical texts? What about the, the ways in which the, the, the gospel works to change who we are? Um, and so... That was um, what I understood to be a, a traditional Protestant position. Um, I understood the problems with it. Because I understood it to be a traditional Protestant position, that, that's what I expected to find in Luther and Calvin. When I turned to Luther and Calvin and what they say about justification, I certainly found elements of that, but I also found that it was by no means the whole story. Because although they do say many of the things I've just described, for them, that legal metaphor of justification always operates in the context of union with Christ. For them, um, although there are important differences between each other as, as well, between Luther and Calvin and how they describe justification, for, for each of them, nevertheless, Faith does not justify because it's the right kind of human disposition to satisfy God's demands. Uh, for each of them, faith justifies because by the power of the Holy Spirit, faith unites us with Christ. Uh, and if we're united with Christ, then we're united with the one who is righteous. Uh, and therefore, they will talk very powerfully about our receiving Christ's righteousness. But that receipt of Christ's righteousness is always because we're united with him by faith uh, and that therefore he is present in our lives in powerful transformative ways. Um, so it's not that there's a kind of substance of righteousness that gets passed across a divine courtroom uh, and enables us to be all right with God. 
it's rather that faith unites us with the person of Christ and, and united to that person than, than his righteousness and, and everything else that he is. Uh, Calvin in particular is, is very clear that although he wants to major on righteousness uh, because he thinks Paul majors on righteousness, that in fact you have to talk about the other aspects of who Christ is, uh, such as holiness, for example, uh, and that that needs to be connected to the, the question of faith as well. Uh, so union with Christ is a very central category for them and not something that's separate from or other than justification by faith. Mm. The two for both of them are intimately connected. So so you, you've uh, looked at the Reformers and seen that that gap is closed mm. between the righteousness of Christ being given to us as, you know, you can imagine it at a kind of arm's length, like, mm-hmm. here's the righteousness of Christ applied yeah. to us, but you're saying it has to, it, it actually operates for them in, in, a, in a context of union with Christ. But for the Reformers, it was, it was important that the, the righteousness of Christ was other or alien to, to the believer, and why you know, you might at one level you might hear that and think, "Oh, that that puts distance." You know, that's mm. that's a that's a bad rea- bad thing. So, why is that actually important? Thank you. Yeah, because that's a really important element in the book, I think, and and one of the things that most interests me about their understanding of Paul, and I think has potential for today, um, because on the one hand, they do always want to say this righteousness is not our own. Mm. It's not just that it doesn't be begin as our own there is a sense for them in which it 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 never completely becomes our own it it impacts us it changes us but it's still christ's righteousness we're we're still always uh beggars in need of grace um which is the the kind of way luther would often express it um so there is a a strong insistence on on alien righteousness that it, it comes from outside um but there's also uh at the same time this passionate insistence on righteousness being received in union with Christ. And you might say, how do these two things cohere together? Um, I'll talk here about Luther in particular, I think, um, because here Luther has this very interesting idea that um, what uh, justification by faith does essentially is, is take us outside of ourselves and place us in Christ. So, for example, when Paul says in Galatians 2, 19 to 20, that he's been crucified with Christ and that it's no longer uh, Paul that lives, but, but Christ that lives in him, Luther takes that with real seriousness. Uh, he, he majors on the idea of the death of the self. Um, and so for him in the Christian life, uh, we day by day have this uh what you might call this this struggle of faith or, or or this life on a spiritual battlefield where day by day we have available to us all of who christ is as believers in the power of the spirit as far as luther's concerned we we can live out of of who christ is and and if we do then we're holy and truly righteous um, but we also continue to live in the midst of a fallen world and we continue to be sinful creatures ourselves Um, and therefore as far as Luther's concerned the other possibility before us day by day is that we turn back 
that we we don't live out of Christ and his righteousness, but that we live out of our old sinful selves. Um, and actually, this is what he means in the famous phrase, simultaneously justified in the sinner. He doesn't mean that you get kind of halfway down a, a journey towards being holy and then get stuck. Uh, what he means is that, that day by day, for as long as we live in this world, um, there, there is this, this spiritual struggle in which we're engaged and, and we have to uh, each day live out of the resources that are ours in Christ or turn back and live out of our sinful selves. Uh, and all of us do both, you know, in, on different occasions. And do you, do you think that that struggle is very present in Paul's letters? Because this is something I was thinking about when I was reading your book, is it, it, Paul seems to have a very high anthropology that when you're in Christ, you're new creation, and you're no longer under sin, you're under grace. And and a, a, an idea that when you're in Christ, there's radical transformation. And um, do you think that that daily struggle is something that Paul emphasizes in his letters? Do you think that's a good reading of Paul? Um, this is one of the areas of Paul where I think the apostle himself walks such a fine line mm. that it's very hard for subsequent interpreters uh, not to emphasize some things in his letters and kind of de-emphasize or miss out some others. Um, so on the one hand, as you say, Paul is full of this profound sense that, that in Christ people are new creations. Um, and yet, if you read, for example, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, what's he having to deal with all the time? He, he's having to deal across all the chapters of this letter with multiple problems in the life of the church caused by believers in the church, not, not living in the way that Paul feels that they're called to do as those who are in Christ. Um, and yet his solution is not to say to them, um, well, you've blown it. Uh, sorry, uh, you, you need to forget this following Jesus business. Uh, you know, it, it's for somebody else, but maybe it's not for you. Uh, that, that, that's not his response. His response again and again is, is to keep telling them who they are in Christ and to urge them to be conformed to that reality. Um, so uh, any interpretation of Paul has to deal with the two-sidedness of that. The, the question is not whether the two sides need to be part of how we hear Paul. It's what's the relationship between them and how do we strike the right balance between them. And very interestingly, different Christian traditions do that in different ways. It's, it's one of the things that uh, distinguishes between Christian traditions, actually, is, is the different attitudes towards that question. And, and how do you think um, Luther offers uh, a, a good way of, of reconciling those two realities? Yeah. Well, I think th there are some weaknesses in how Luther does it. I mean, his, his insistence is always that if we do live out the resources that Christ uh, brings to us, then um, we will do good works. Yeah. You know, we will love others. Uh, we will serve God. We will serve neighbor. Um, and he's always drawn to the organic metaphors in Paul. He's always drawn to the, the metaphor of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, good trees will bear good fruit. Uh, he says it again and again and again, quoting Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Uh, it's one of his, his favorite texts where a gospel text is, is used to confirm what he's saying about the interpretation of Paul. Um, 
and and that obviously has its roots in Paul's texts, um, and it's a joyful vision. But there are also a lot of texts in Paul that emphasize the obligation of believers uh, to be obedient, um, the the obligation to follow God's commands. Uh, and, and Luther, I think, has less to say exegetically about, about those texts. Um, so there are weaknesses in how he strikes the balance. But I've been in, intrigued by this idea that he has, that the Christian life is, is not this kind of, um, you know, kind of steady progress towards uh, sanctity and holiness. Um, I think he does think that we make progress, but we, we make progress in the Christian life in his view you know, m- much more uh, by learning to trust God more fully day by day. It- it's not so much a question of how holy we are or how holy we've become. It- it's how much have we learned to trust. And so if you if you talked for Luther about progress in the Christian life, I think the kind of picture you'd have to have of it is of a kind of spiral, you know, where we do make progress. We, we-, we-, we do grow in our capacity to love God and neighbor, but, it- it- but it's not a linear thing. And uh, that's intrigued me because maybe I'm just not very sanctified, but that, that, kind, of, that kind of makes more sense to me uh, of t- in terms of my own Christian experience, you know, where I find that, that, that yes, sometimes I can indeed live in, in the way that the, the New Testament teaches that I should, and, and yet at other times I'm very conscious that I fail to do that. And, and Luther's theology and how he reads Paul seems to, to make allowances for that. Uh, even as I'd want to acknowledge that what he says about those things are not the only way of making sense of yeah. Paul's texts on these issues. Um, I want to switch gears here for a moment and um, see if you're up for a speed round. So, mm-hmm. so speed rounds where you have you have ten seconds to answer questions. Okay. And um, and then we 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 we, uh, we go through a list of them. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, and some of these are, are are quite important. So if if you you've got a sandwich and it falls on the floor and no one's around. Do you pick it up and eat it? Depends how dirty the floor is. Okay. Um, what, what, what's a story from your childhood where uh, if, if, if folks who know you heard it, they would say, yep, that's Stephen? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I was always reading. I think okay. that's the, yeah. I think R- that's reading the, Luther and Calvin from no, age eight? No, uh, not okay. reading Luther and Calvin, but okay. uh, always reading and always so deep in a book that people could, people could ask me a question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just wouldn't hear what they were saying. You could drive a train through the yeah, room. Yeah, you could and, drive okay. a train through yeah. the room. And, uh, yeah. and uh, I'm sure my family would say that I'm still sometimes like that. Yeah, what yeah. were you reading? Oh, all kinds of things. Uh, but largely history. My, my first degree was, was history. And, and from early childhood, you know, I, I read a lot of history um, and, you know, probably read more about World War II than it's healthy for a seven or eight-year-old to read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's some pretty heavy stuff there. So, yeah. um, uh, which, which reminds me, we, um, it'd be helpful if you explain where you're, where you're from. Okay. That's, uh, it, pe- yeah. People are probably listening to you trying to figure out your accent, but uh, not quite placing it. Yeah. Well, I'm fairly well-traveled. Um, I now live in Chicago. I'm, I'm professor in New Testament at North Park Theological Seminary there. Uh, we've been in Chicago since 2006, uh, but I'm originally from the Liverpool area in the north of England. But in between living there in early childhood and now, I've lived in North Wales, 
Uh, I was an undergraduate student in Yorkshire, and then I was in Glasgow in Scotland for nearly 20 years uh, before we came to Chicago, and my wife is from Glasgow. So people generally, you know, they, they'll recognize I'm from the UK, and if they know a little bit about the UK, they'll be able to tell that my accent is northern rather than southern, but then mm-hmm. they'll have difficulty placing where from. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. Um, are, you, are you a vegetarian? Uh, no. Okay, do, do you think that it would be wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? <laughs> what are animal crackers <laughs> <laughs> do they have them in Glasgow <laughs> I don't think so L- little biscuits that oh, are in, in the, the shape, shape of, of an animals. animal okay yeah and uh, no no it doesn't raise any ethical issues okay no. perfect um, uh, not what, as long as it doesn't bother their conscience yeah, yeah but yeah. as a good Paulinist I would say if they, their conscience is bothered then they shouldn't right. do it no yeah. that's good good, yeah. good insight um, what do you think is the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years Oh, great question. Can I have two? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, probably at either end of the 50 years. I mean, I, I think at the start, uh, Ernst Kaiserman's commentary on Romans. If you look at recent scholarship on Paul and people who are doing really interesting work, there's a significant number of people that are very you know, strongly influenced by Kaiserman. Um, and he exercised great influence over J.L. Martin and a number of people in North American Pauline scholarship. Yeah. So, so uh, place, place your orders on Amazon. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, Kaiserman's commentary on Romans at the start. And mm-hmm. then I'm biased, but I think in terms of recent books, John Barclay's Paul and the Gift. That's been a pretty consistent answer. So, I, um, yeah, that's, and that's why I mentioned him, him uh, writing the foreword for your book. I, th- I think your, your book is definitely in the, in the tradition of, Bar- of what Barclay's doing. Um, so, do you, do you believe in uh, objective beauty? Objective beauty? Yeah. What's the difference between that and subjective beauty? Well, that, that there's a, a standard... I don't know. <laughs> why, why do I ask this question? So, yeah. so, it's, uh, so there's a standard of beauty independent of, of opinion of an individual viewer. Yeah, whether we can access it or not, the, the, there's a standard of beauty, I think, mm-hmm. in, in terms of uh, you know, God's perspective and God's judgment. Okay, good. Um, in the past 50 years of, of biblical studies, going back to the 50 years, what do you think is the most off-the-wall theory that you've heard advanced by biblical scholars? Off-the-wall theory? My goodness. Do we have another day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, well, I'm kind of reluctant to answer that question because if you, if you, I mean, I think there are a number, but if you, because if some, you of them are, that, some of them are some friends, some of them are friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, they, they're not going to listen. That's okay. <laughs> um, I, I suppose you got, you let, me de- let me describe. Yeah, if you're going to make me answer, let yeah. me describe what I, I think is a problem. Then, yeah. um, not in terms of a particular theory or a particular individual, mm-hmm. but. You're a but peacemaker, I, I, I can tell. I think in terms of uh, Pauline scholarship, okay, we, we all have various historical questions about Paul. Um, our data, our information as historians is fairly limited. Okay? We have uh, Paul's own texts, and there are even profound questions about authorship in relation to all 13 of the, the Pauline letters, uh, strong debates about that. We have a certain amount of external information, but not very much. Um, and so uh, as we pursue the question of Pauline theology, we're trying to use the historical evidence that we have um, to reconstruct Paul's theology in the clearest possible fashion. 
our difficulty is that there might be more than one way of doing that that could be plausible given the evidence that's available to us. Um, and I think it would be good for the discipline if we were all able to recognize that uh, rather than continuing to operate as if there is one single definitive account of Pauline theology that, that, that's possible. So I'm not saying that because there were multiple Pauls, and I'm not saying that because I think Paul didn't know his own theology. I, I'm saying that because our ability to access it is limited. Uh, and, and so um, historical scholarship has a crucial role in saying, well, uh, is a particular interpretation of Paul's theology plausible? Is it consistent with the historical evidence that we do have and the nature of Paul's texts? But it, it does seem to me that on, on a number of questions that there is more than one plausible answer. Um, so, for example, you know, Pauline scholars have debated endlessly what is the center of Paul's theology. Is it justification by faith? Is it participation in Christ? Is it salvation history? These are all plausible answers that have something to be said for them. And, you know, I'm not sure that we're going to reach the point where we're able to say one is definitively right and the others are definitively yeah. wrong. Yeah. Uh, but... Notice how thoroughly I've subverted yeah. Your, yeah. Your, your, well, your quick yes-no yeah, answer. Yeah, yeah you've, you've gone yeah. over the 10-second ten, ten <laughs> yeah. rule. But, um, so <laughs> so to, to another important question, um, uh, so knock-knock. Who's there? To. To who? To whom. Oh. All right. Uh, do you think it's important that humans <laughs> colonize Mars? Why or why not? No. I think we'd be... Well, I mean, I think space exploration would be wonderful in itself, but we have some things to do to save this planet first. Mm, okay. Um, but if we don't save the planet, it would be nice to have, would it be nice to have a, 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 a colony on Mars that we, we could, you know, propagate the species? Um, depends who gets to go. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, what's the fastest speed you've ever driven in the car? Oh, uh, I, I know question. you were you were you, you uh, had a you had a, your car broke down kind of up here and your son was able, able to pick you up. But was it, did that break the record or no? Uh, no, okay. no, probably about ninety, and that's that certainly was in Britain rather than here. Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, would you rather be able to talk with with animals or speak all foreign languages? Oh, great question! Speak all foreign languages. Okay. Um, do you have any unusual phobias? No, not unusual. Uh, I'm scared of heights. Okay. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's fairly that's, common. That's pretty normal. Um, knock, knock. <laughs> Dare I answer this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, who's there? No one. No one who? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Would you, would you rather always, <laughs> would you rather always say everything on your mind or never speak again? Never speak again. All right. And then last question. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Oh. I think the parallels between... I'm very interested, actually, in the parallels between 
Paul and Greco-Roman religion and the, the, the Hellenistic mystery cults. Uh, not, not part of the, the current book at all, but something I've been interested in for quite a long time. So I think there are very interesting things to be said about that relationship in the ancient world. But the idea that there's a genealogical relationship, that, that somehow Paul's ideas are derived from the, the mystery cults, which was uh, an idea that was very popular in the history of religion school in the late 19th and early 20th century. I, I think that's thoroughly discredited and it, it kind of appears again from time to time. Uh, and, and, and I think that's an idea that needs to go. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, uh, we're coming near the end of the, the interview, but I just want to, um, to ask a little bit about, a little bit further about some of the ways that your work has enabled you to address current trends in biblical studies. So you, you come out quite strongly in the book that you think um, N.T. Wright is, is plain wrong about Paul's phrase, the righteousness of God. That God, you know, I'm quoting here from from Second Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who has who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, so where do you think Paul, or sorry, where do you think Wright has misread Paul regarding the righteousness of God? Because that's a that's a pretty central idea yeah. for him. Yeah. Um. Well, I think it it's a question again about how you understand justification. I think. I mentioned earlier that for Tom, interpreting Paul within a covenantal framework is very important. And so in relation to justification, he wants to say that justification is uh, the way in which people are made members of God's family, the way in which we become part of the people of God. Now, uh, those who become part of the people of God, in Tom's view, very clearly are therefore those whose sins are forgiven, for whom Christ's death was was effective as an atoning sacrifice so it's it's not like um, that there's a, any neglect of atonement in in his reading of Paul at all but that's a very different way of hearing Paul and, and and ordering what Paul's saying about the nature of justification and salvation if you like than uh, has been done previously and I do think there are a number of problems with that one is lexical that we just seem to be lacking in other texts that that speak about being justified in terms of of becoming part of a people or a family and and the other is i think that there are texts in paul where justification seems very directly to address the issue of sin um so i would want to say i think that the justification deals with our guilt and our, uh, our our guilt in relation to sin and our bondage to sin and sets us free from that, and and in the process, the family of God, the church, is created. Whereas typically in his writings, Tom would kind of put it the other way around, um, would, would emphasize first the becoming part of God's family, and 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 that because we're part of that family, then our, our our issue with sin is is dealt with through Christ's death and resurrection. Um, so if you like, it's it's not a disagreement about what is necessary in terms of uh, salvation. You know, I, I, I the same components are on the table, if you like, in terms of the parts that, that go into uh, what Paul is trying to say. But we're hearing Paul quite differently in terms of those, how those are to be properly related to each other and arranged. Mm. Um, the uh, kind of different direction here, but have you have you done any work looking at the joint declaration? I forget what it's called on, uh, on justification between Lutherans and Catholics, um, and wondering if if your work has given you insight uh, regarding that. 
Yeah, not not really. I mean, I've read it a mm -hmm. long time ago. I I just felt I think that that there had to be a place where the project stopped, uh, and so actually I I was conscious of that as a place that it could go to. Uh, but in the interests of finishing the book, I, I, I decided not to. I, I think my general impression is that the, the joint declaration does great work in identifying genuine common ground, but that the remaining significant differences are kind of skirted around or marginalized uh, for the sake of, of uh, creating a joint declaration. So my overall take is that it does some good and in important work, but it doesn't resolve all the issues or differences between uh, Protestant and Roman Catholic understandings of these issues. Yeah, and, and um, just coming to a close here, if you could briefly, um, of course, the subtitle to your book is Reconciling Old and New Perspectives. So what, what's a way that your your work has enabled you to, to bring together old perspectives on Paul, so Reformation perspectives, and, and some of the new perspective on Paul? Yeah, I, I think... Well, this is your question made me smile. Let me tell you a story. I was coming out of an, a, a session at the Society of Biblical Literature Conference last November, mm -hmm. uh, and and Tom Wright was leaving the same session at the same time, and he said to me, "I'm I'm I'm not sure that you know you're right that we're going to be able simply to reconcile old and new perspectives." And uh, that was an interesting comment and and good feedback because I think in the book. I do reconcile all the new perspectives, but it's it's not on the basis of everyone being right. Uh, you know, it, it it's on the basis of my trying to say what is the the I think of is, is of continuing value in the reformers' interpretation of Paul, and that involves saying yes to some elements of their interpretation and very clearly no to other elements of their interpretation. But then, in relation to to Tom himself and others in the new perspective. I'm doing exactly the same thing. So I'm offering a way, I think, of reconciling old and new perspectives, but I'd want to recon recognize that, that it's you know, my particular way in terms of the uh, historical and theological judgments I'm reaching and that another scholar might, might reach mm. a different set of judgments yeah. and, and bring things together in a different way. Yeah. So... Um what do you see as some of the more pastoral implications of your work? Mm. So you, you've obviously, you, uh, I forget how long you said you worked on this book. Was it like oh, 20 years or so? A, 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 not quite that, but okay. a very long time, 15 years. 15 years. Yeah. So, so you, you've, you've sat with this for a long time, mm. and obviously um, in pastoral con context, you know, this is, this is, this is in, in your mind and in your heart. So, mm. so what, what do you see coming out in those environments? Well, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think... Two aspects to that. I think the new perspective gave me something. It's a, it's a gift from scholars like Tom and, and Jimmy Dunn and Ed Sanders. Gave me something that, that was very important, actually, in, in my experience in Chicago. So we belong to a very small uh, evangelical covenant church in Chicago, uh, right in the North Park neighborhood. It's one of the most diverse zip codes in the U.S., and so uh, across the 10 years or so that we've been part of that congregation, the congregation has, has reflected the nature of the neighborhood. So it's a, a, a multi-ethnic congregation where many of the people who are members are first-generation immigrants or the children of first-generation immigrants. Uh, and that uh, emphasis that in Christ those boundaries between different ethnic and cultural traditions are, are, are overcome – 
that's come I, I I've seen ways in which that's really essential to the the gospel. But in that same context, at the same time, we are all very different people. We do come from different backgrounds. Communication and understanding each other can be really difficult. How do you have a life as a Christian community that that doesn't just fall apart because we don't understand each other? It, the only way that can work is if people have a firm grasp on the grace that's been given to them in Christ and therefore the grace that they need to show to one another. And there, Luther and Calvin and others in the Reformation tradition spoke to me you know, very powerfully about what God has done for us in Christ not being something that we've achieved and not, not being something that we can claim as a, a kind of a possession that 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 we in, in inhabit or express in 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 a kind of smooth holy life that, that that always always goes in the right way as a Christian community it's much more messy than that and and the reformation tradition just seemed to me to speak very powerfully about that grace of god and so the the two together really in in that context and more broadly the second part of it i think in terms of those who are engaged in scholarship you know, I came from an evangelical background in the UK, you know, grew up in churches that would identify themselves as evangelical, came into, you know, biblical studies and Pauline studies in particular at a time when dominant scholarly voices were saying that everything that, that the tradition that I came from had, had held dear about uh, Paul uh, was in fact mistaken and misguided and, and had kind of gone off the the rails by following a, a tradition derived from the Reformation. And so um, I hope from f- folks in scholarship who come from similar backgrounds, I hope one of the things this book does is is even if they reach different conclusions from me, giving them a way of beginning to think about, okay, what in the church traditions that I come from and, and the way in which the Bible gets interpreted there, what what ne- really needs to be questioned and really needs to be criticised, and yet also on the other hand, what what can be affirmed and what is of value, and and in what ways do we need to keep standing in that tradition? So, um, what I would hope for to come out of the book is a is a kind of, if you like, capacity for self critical reflection in in those kind of Christian traditions, which which doesn't kind of refuse hard questions and is willing to examine itself but also at the same time doesn't simply say well it, it was all nonsense all along and we 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 just simply have to jettison you know the places that we've come from and the the insights that our forebears offered us well Stephen, um on behalf of all of us here in Ashoda and at onscript i want to thank you so much for for taking the time to to come up here and for everyone listening please go uh, check out his book reading paul with the reformers reconciling old and new perspectives there's a link on the website onscript.study thank you so much okay, thank you You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.